Rhodium is currently hiring a crop of paid summer interns to research Chinese policy. If you're interested in China's outbound investment, Chinese economic development, China's economic statecraft, new energy and climate policies, the financial system, and or EU-China relations, please check out the career page at rhg.com to apply. We're hoping to get folks in the door and up and running in early July, so please apply ASAP. Thanks. When we refer to China, we refer to them as a near-peer competitor. This is dumb, because as far as I can tell, the Chinese are better than we are at cyber offense and have some strategic weaknesses as well, but also have many strategic strengths. Dave Attell started his career at the NSA and spent the subsequent 20 years in offensive information security. He's on Twitter at Dave Attell. Dave, welcome to China Talk. I wanted to start off talking about this YouTube series that you've done, sort of critiquing cyber policy papers. You also have a, a Google Doc where there's 50 graded papers in this space. These uh, YouTube videos, some of them have 100 or 200 views, but they're some of the most valuable content that I've consumed, not just about cyber policy, but about the meta learning of how to read policy and think tank work, which I think is really like the sort of next step when you get out of an undergrad or, 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 or master's sort of school level understanding of what's happening, but also but having a sort of deeper understanding of the forces and drivers which are compelling people to write in a certain way is really like the next step up in, in, in developing understanding of policy discourses. Maybe first off, before we jump into the nitty-gritty of some of the debates, what prompted you to, to, start, this, to start this series? My journey into cyber policy started maybe eight years ago, nine years ago, when we got a knock on the door of my company, and it was a very friendly person who said, hey, I'm from the U.S. Department of Commerce, from the Export Control Division, and it looks like you do information security and software sales. And I was like, yeah, we do. And he's, and I'm like, and why are you at my door? <laughs> right? like, and he's like, you know what? <laughs> we just released a big proposed rule that would cover the things you do in great detail. And I regret to inform you that we never change the rules between when we propose them and when we do them. But if you wanted to complain, we do have a, a way for you to do that. Good luck to you. Your business is screwed. See you later. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> what is happening to me? So Dave, what was your business and why did the Department of Commerce care about it? Okay, so my business was selling penetration testing products. And the one we sold is Canvas, is, or at the time, I'm no longer with the company. And it basically broke into computers from remotely. It was like something you could use to, to run on a network and tell you whether or not that network was hackable. Now, obviously, this is what you might consider dual-use technology because... Other people would be using it in a way that was not a penetration test. They could be using it to actually break into computers. And so the Commerce Department and all governments focused on this on a very, in a very particular way and thought the best way to limit risk globally was apply export controls. And I talked to the Commerce Department a little bit about this, and I slowly and I went to some public meetings, which they still have for the ICE tech. And then eventually I decided to become a member of the actual Information Systems Technology Advisory Committee, which is the, the board on the Commerce Department, which is purely advisory, but deals with all of the export control-related drama. 
and tries to tell the Commerce Department what is a good idea and what is a terrible idea. And so I've spent five years enmeshed in this technical but very governmental process. And then I started reading more about how did this process happen. And then I started reading, realistically, everything there was published on cyber policy. Everything Belfer publishes and everything the Atlantic Council publishes and everything Just Security publishes and everything Lawfare publishes. And I started writing for Lawfare and for a few of these other groups. And I started my blog, CyberSec Politics. And long story short, I, I read probably many more papers than most of the people who do cyber policy for a living were reading because I was trying to catch up. But it also gave me a broad feel for the industry as a whole. Just to give some color to the story, the Commerce Department uh, team member who walked up to my door had very messed up ears. His ears were like cauliflower ears is what we would call it. And I saw that and I was like, hey, man, do you train jujitsu? Because we have jujitsu mats in the office at the time. And he's like, actually, yeah, I do. And so we ended up bonding over jujitsu, which sounds weird. But I want to bring what I've started to do with cyber policy to jujitsu. Or, or I want to give you an analogy. And what the difference is between, say, previous iterations of grappling and, and combat and modern Brazilian jiu-jitsu was that someone started putting a very strict naming and scoring system on top of different positions on the ground. So if you're in if you're laying with your chest on top of somebody, you're in side control. If you're if your legs are around that person, you're on top of them, you're in mount. If you're if they have one of your their your legs trapped between their legs, you're in half guard, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And we didn't have that for any of the cyber policy work. And I'm just going to be completely honest. We've gone almost nowhere in cyber policy in 20 years. Literally nowhere. And it was a depressing and weird sight. If you just, as an outsider, read cyber policy papers 20 years ago and you read them today, they cover the same problems. They cover them the same way. And that's starting to change. So... What you're seeing now... Or say, let's say, let's say start. Why is that? And why don't you provide an example? I will give you an example. Today I read, this morning in fact, and I saw a little bit of this last night. Someone posted on Twitter. She was like, hey, I wrote a new paper in cyber policy. It went into the Oxford Journal. Now, in order to get into the Oxford Journal, you have to be an academic, which I'm not. So I emailed a bunch of people and I'm like, send me this paper. And they sent me the paper. And the paper talks about how European and other countries can utilize cyber signal sending to establish deterrence. It could have been written 20 years ago. And the only valuable thing that I got out of the paper was if you are trying to think about cyber deterrence, you have to contort yourself into horrible knots in order to try to make anything that's happening in reality fit your model. And that itself was very valuable, like understanding how wrong the original framing is, is, is a good thing to know. But the paper, it's, other than that, the paper's not moving anything forward. And we have a lot of problems with cyber policy. Cyber policy is harder than most other policy. It's harder for a number of reasons, one of which is that almost all of it happens covertly, which makes it very hard to write about. It's hard because all the people who know about the subject are subject to pre-pub review. 
or are not allowed to talk about American things or British things, even though those are the things they're most familiar with and most understand. It's an extremely broad subject. I read a paper yesterday on exploit sales and brokers, exploit brokers. All these things are very, it's like very fun to talk about for people. And the problem with that is there's no one exploit market to really analyze. Exploit markets are extremely complex. And writing a paper on exploit markets means you would have to segment it out. You, first of all, are not going to know all of the different pieces of the market that you were going to have to look at. All these things, like the complexities, the covertness, the built-in political sensitivities, these are these have all conspired to make uh, and, cyber and, policy. And it goes Go without saying, like technical sophistication, right? Not everyone writing about this has been a hacker since they were 14 years old. Especially, I would say, for the past 20 years. But this is starting to really change. So in the States, actually, not necessarily overseas, but in the United States, there is now a huge collection of people doing cyber policy that do have the technical background, have not graduated with an international relations degree or a legal degree, but in fact have computer science degrees or computer science backgrounds. And that has changed American cyber policy writing for the better. It's been, a, it's been a night and day shift. And that's something that I just don't think is well recognized because so many of the cyber policy people come from nuclear science or international relations or law. And they were just spinning their wheels. Literally, that's all that was happening. So seeing that's depressing. That should go without saying. It should depress everybody that cyber policy is as poorly done as it is. Just for a quick overview into sort of what cyber policy contains, what are a few of the hot topics and, and big debates which are currently going on? Export control of exploits would be the, the funniest one. A lot of the encryption stuff fits into this. Right now, everyone's hyped up over cryptocurrency and regulating cryptocurrency for ransomware. Where should budget go is always a big question. Let me give you just one exciting example which is there's a lot of unrecognized issues one of which is that we have decided to pump a huge quantity of money into CISA and also responsibility which is the for your listeners who are not familiar which is the portion of DHS which is supposed to be doing defensive cybersecurity and they, they do a lot of very good work they do a lot of cool stuff but deep down every person they hire is going to be stolen, essentially, from the, the group of companies that they're trying to protect, which I find really funny. Like, we have a sort of total capacity, not of two fronts in a war, but more of 0.9 of fronts in a war. And we're, we're overstretched. So when solar winds happened, we could not completely handle solar winds. That was more than we had the capacity to handle. And solar winds plus the exchange thing meant we, we were so far overstretched that we were just dropping other major events and not handling them. This sort of capacity issue is visible in a number of weird ways. Relationship building between the government and the industry has been strained, to say the least. I don't. Once you start talking about it, it's, there's almost infinite issues, and it gets very depressing. But things are improving in some areas, and so maybe we should focus on the good news. I don't want to make this like one of those quarantine podcasts where everything is sad all the time. All right. Dave, so what makes a good policy paper and a cyber policy paper in particular? 
You know, one of the things that I'd like to point out is that I have literally given grades to 50 policy papers in a spreadsheet that everyone on earth has access to if they can use Google Docs. And they can go through... In the show notes. It'll be in the show notes. They can go through and look at all the A's and compare them to the F's and see if they agree with my scoring. And in fact, they can edit the spreadsheet, add their own scores and their own rationales. And I in some cases have been pretty strict with papers that do not meet the guidelines. But there's only, let me, to give you just the jujitsu stylistics, knowing where you are in a paper, knowing what kind of paper you're reading is extremely important. And there's only four kinds of papers. There's a, a paper based on a big pile of data. There's a paper based on a logical argument. There's a paper that's a connection of otherwise known but not obvious facts. And then there's a new sort of mental model that I portray and explain. Sometimes you'll see a little bit of a mix, but largely this is it. So I equate those papers to like knowing where I'm standing, just having that. What are the types of issues that you would normally have, for example, with a paper that is based on a big database of facts, right? So there's a lot of sort of very typical issues with those papers, and you can start going down almost a check sheet to say, does this, pay, does this data set meet the sort of, is it actually supporting the arguments of the paper in the way that the author is saying it is? And you can make it almost a very objective study. With logical arguments, you can do logical analysis with the connection of otherwise known but not obvious facts. You can see if those facts really do support it. One problem we have in the cyber policy space is that so much of our references are newspapers or like Wire magazine. Like every time you look at like the footnotes of a cyber policy paper and half of them are like Wall Street Journal, New York Times and all these newspapers and you're like, that's terrible. That's a terrible state for a cyber policy paper to be in. So you'll see that all the time. And then the other one is if you get a new model Let's say I have a model of how the exploit sales process works, like just the whole market. I just have a model of it. Within those model papers, there's sort of four basic ways, like of levels of maturity. And one of them is just basically classifying and naming things. So you're just starting to sort out like who the players are and maybe how they're connected. And then you go one level higher and you have a very descriptive, detailed understanding of all the ways the things in your taxonomy are linked together and how they operate. So that's the next step. And then once you have a good enough descriptive understanding, you have a predictive model. And so that's a model that like I'm testing. I'm literally saying I've looked at this model. I, I, here's what the model says should happen and here's what happened. And we're tracking within a certain range of possibilities. And once you have that, you can start doing something that's actionable, which is where I start acting in that world. I start saying, if I raise the price of exploits through the roof, then this is what will happen. So let's try raising the price and seeing what will happen. And that's where we're at. Now, what you'll see and when, when you see a new model being portrayed and explained is people will start with basic naming and classification of it, then make a few leaps and start giving you sort of policy proposals. They'll be like, here's what we should do to have a change and effect in the world. And they've just jumped over all the middle bits. They don't know that their model is accurate to how the world works because they haven't tried predicting anything. And these are just really common flaws, just hugely 
just big mistakes that should never exist in real research. How reproducible is the work in your cyber policy paper is not a question people were asking. No one was doing peer review of any kind until I, they have go to the journals, they do peer review. It's all the same five people though. And because the journals are behind academic paywalls. It's interesting, Dave, because the kind of challenge in China policy analysis or like broader tech policy analysis land is, is completely is i hear many of the same challenges right the idea that you can write policy papers without being critiqued is an odd one to me given the sort of like level of i'm not saying like peer review before pre-publication peer review is the way to solve this but it feels like there is a real reluctance within the policy community to put another paper on blast and say it's dumb um you know i'm interviewing i'm interviewing like bad china take today the twitter channel okay like basically the only time folks engaging critically on a topic is is like a random twitter feed I, i feel like it's a real issue that folks can write stuff without the expectation that folks will that other people out there will challenge them on their logic or push them to improve their work or or what have you. I'll tell you what has been working, which is I started putting all my policy papers in just Google Docs and opening them up to the entire world to comment on and you will be surprised how many great comments you'll get. And that's something that other people have started doing privately. Like I've seen people will send me a link and they'll say, look, I'd rather have you do it here than in public later on. And they'll get, you know, the same review they would normally get. So it can be done. Like we can change the way we operate by using all the tools. Like Google Docs is the best one right now for doing document review. It doesn't have to be as hard as we're making it. All right, Dave, you've inspired me. We're going to start the China Talk-led Google Doc of China paper criticism analysis, which will also be in the show notes. So if you have a paper which you're proud of or you want to praise or condemn, throw it into the Google Doc and we'll have some fun bringing this model that you created in the cyber policy sphere onto China writ more broadly. There's something that scares me even more than the lack of peer review which is the extreme gravitational force that is Microsoft and other big software companies, but primarily Microsoft in the cyber policy space. And it is very difficult for a cyber policy professional to critique Microsoft because they are one of the only places that hires cyber policy people. And it's almost like career death. If you have a significant critique of how software companies work, where are you going to go next? Most cyber policy people have done a stint in some Microsoft-funded organization. So that's something that's, I think, even scarier and more distorting to the conversation than, than, some, than the lack of peer review, which is also terrible. Sure. So who funds cyber policy papers right now? It's mostly tech firms, the U.S. government. I don't know that they get funded from the U.S. government. Right? Obviously, a few of them do. Rand has done some work. I don't know if that was directly funded, but you'll see the work that you see coming out of Belfer and Atlantic Council is shared amongst a lot of different funders. But it's worth wondering, like, where did some of these funds come from? Like, for example, like at the Cyber Peace Institute, like, where did that money come from? These are questions that I think you should answer before you take the papers that they're producing and, the, and like the proposals they're putting forward at face value. So, like, where do you see those potential distortions uh, playing out, Dave? 
So the, here's a funny thing to me, which is that every time we talk about doing vulnerability response or incident response, we talk about patching. Like, why can't we just get people to patch? So what we don't talk about is real risk reduction. Like, why is it that the U.S. government isn't doing its own patches? Why isn't the U.S. government releasing an advisory that says, hey, we found something vulnerable or we know of something that's very vulnerable, say, Microsoft Exchange, and we think you should just turn it off. Just turn it right off. Don't wait for a patch. Don't patch it. Turn it off. Take it off your network. Right? Like, we cannot go there because of this immense gravity from the software vendors that that makes it unthinkable. There's so many unthinkable things. There's we it took 5 years for this software bill of materials to even come out as a as an almost as an idea. It's you know obviously not been fully implemented yet. That's Alan Freeman must be like why is this so freaking hard to push forward? And the distortions in the space that we operate are why the inherent gravities of some of some of what they've been able to do by capturing the policy arguments are why some of these ideas are so unthinkable. You, you know what this kind of reminds me of, Dave? There was like a great retrospective of Michelle Obama's food policy. So for those who don't remember, Michelle Obama was in charge of getting America like healthy again and like eating right and working out. And initially, when she came into the office, she had like very bold plans to cut out sugar and promote fruits and vegetables and really remake like what the what the what sort of like food priorities like the U.S. government were going to push forward. And one of the things which happened is the sort of like fast food lobby, the Coca-Colas and General Mills of the world got it into her head that the answer to all of this is like calorie in calorie out basically like all that matters for like your health and weight is like the amount of calories you eat which is actually not the case like the food like the type of food you eat and how long it takes to digest and whatever is like very important to your overall health but within a year they were able to get it into her head that just like more exercise is was the way to go and we didn't necessarily need to take aggressive steps to change the the type of food composition and i remember when solar winds came out and jake sullivan goes on tv and he's everybody patch your systems it's really yeah. that's the best we have why is this? that the best um, we it's... have i will tell you why it is these major distortions that we get from the software vendors. Massive. And it, it, it stretches yeah. throughout the entire infrastructure of how we think about and do these things. Why are O-Days so hard to think about? Because Microsoft and other software vendors have made it hard to think about them. Because it hurts their bottom line deep down. It is not complicated to see this. The, if you're not looking for a job at Microsoft and you can afford to say these things, then you can say there are distortions in how we talk about this stuff. Sometimes these are, they're not wrong, right? Sometimes they have valid perspectives. But right now, it's a black hole. We're spinning around it. We're trapped in this little time warp. So it's not healthy. Dave, other sort of lessons, advice you've gotten from your kind of downloading a few decades of, of cyber policy papers? I will say that... One thing I love about cyber policy people is that when you critique their paper, even if you give it an F, they love you. They absolutely love you because someone read their freaking paper. Like that for them is amazing. So I think here's, what, here's another thing that I've learned. 
is that when you're trying to look at larger systems, you often have something which is called a compositional flaw, which essentially means that when I, if I'm looking, for example, at how to predict the U.S. government, I really need to decompose it down to its little component parts. What are all the different stakeholders? What are they saying? What are all their interests? And then try to figure out how to add all that up back into what will the U.S. government actually do? Or what will the Chinese government do? Or what will the Europeans do? And most people are looking at a lot of these cyber problems as if they were like big nation states with mono positions fighting other nation states. So what does the U.S. government want versus what does the Chinese government want? This is the question they're trying to ask in a lot of their papers. But what comes, if you look at it properly, you have to look much more granular. So the level of abstraction that most people are operating on in a cyber policy paper is usually wrong. Like you can't say the U.S. government wants this and the Chinese want this because some parts of the U.S. government want that other parts of the U.S. government very much don't want that. And just to give you an example, there's probably areas where the, the Commerce Department does not want to control a technology, but the Defense Department does want to control a technology. And the same thing is true across the table in Europe or in China or in Russia, for example. So it's not that you're making a deal with China versus America, you're making a deal between two component pieces, like which pieces of the governments are making deals with other pieces of the other governments and other and parts of industry. And I think that's been very eye opening to see is like, what, who out there is doing the right levels of abstraction, which is something that I think applies to other parts of technology governance as well. All right, Dave, let's talk about China. What's struck out to you about 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 the PRC in there and, and what they're doing in the cyber realm? Let me talk about, very briefly, how the United States talks about China, because I find it stupid. When we refer to China, we refer to them as a near-peer competitor or a pacing challenge, I think the, the current parlance. And this is dumb, because as far as I can tell, the Chinese are better than we are at cyber offense and have invested in it very heavily and have some strategic weaknesses as well, but also have many strategic strengths. And you can see this very clearly with a few of the signaling messages that I, I look at when I look at China. And one of those is the Tianfu Cup. And holy cow, did I probably crush that, that pronunciation. But the Tianfu Cup, for those of people who have not paid attention to it, is a direct analogy to what here in the States we would call pwn to own, meaning you, as a hacker or a security company, you walk up into this conference, into this booth, and you say, I have an exploit for Google Chrome, and if I show you the exploit, you will give me $100,000 on the spot, pretty much. And you'll then give the exploit to Google, and Google will patch it. It's like a little contest. And the Chinese... When they did Tianfu Cup, which was essentially the same model, first of all, the exploits rolled straight into their military program and were used against the, the Uyghurs. But secondarily, they were amazing exploits. Just amazing. Just like pieces of art, focusing on all of the hardest targets you could possibly imagine. And the American, like, Pone to Own was also pretty good. But the level the Chinese are at 
even when they're just messing around, is it's, it's like watching Tiger Woods. So I just, it's like we have good golfers here, but I'm like, dang, look at that magic happen. So I don't know that. And sorry, Dave, let's just, let's stay on this for one okay. second. So this is what people, if you're joining like the, I assume it's like Tianfu, like if you're joining the like Tianfu Cup and you're just showing off like something that you're willing to dispose of. It's not your best stuff. Correct. But you're just okay. correct. That's the thing that kills you, right? This is their throwaway. That's what makes a good signal. Like a peacock tail is a signal. It says, I'm so fit. I can carry this giant thing with me everywhere and nothing can kill me. So the same thing is true with all good signaling. This was all the stuff they could afford just to get rid of. And it was just brilliant stuff. Just brilliant. All the stuff where everyone else would complain about, but they think, oh, I'm sure this was the first time it was used in the wild. I don't know. So here's what I have to say is like the Chinese researchers I've seen are working the hardest problems and being very successful on a reliable basis. They have 20 years of experience. And I felt that when I went over to China and I talked to some of them. They had a strong community. It was pretty big. It was not as big as, say, Herndon, which is just wall-to-wall, like, glass buildings, but still pretty darn big. And there's a certain aspect that you can only – there's like a – I'm not going to say it's a look in your eye, but there's just like a mindset you can only have when you've broken into a couple thousand machines that you weren't supposed to be on and you've had to build up all the strategic awareness and operational security and infrastructure and HR and policy. And there's just a certain level you have you can get to and you can definitely see that in China. You know, like I had a very fun experience in China where they actually, my reseller in China hired a driver and a translator. The driver was the translator and they barely spoke English. And they drove us to the Cybersecurity Institute of, in Beijing, and we were trying to sell them this product. And then, and then just after a, a, about 10 minutes of just complete miscommunication, they brought in two people who looked completely different from everybody else in the room and spoke much better English and were very technical. Those were the actual like technical engineers who knew what was going on. And they just had a completely different like mindset. It's like everything is different when you've actually done the work. And I just think, like, the Chinese are at a point where I I would not consider them a pacing threat anymore. I would consider them some of the best in the world, if not the best in the world, at doing cyber offense. And the same thing may not be true for cyber defense, which is a bad strategic place to be. It is an unstable strategic place. So in the States, we have a certain level of trust in our... Uh, ability to discover and attribute attacks. Not, look, it's by no means perfect. But when you go to a CrowdStrike or a Mandiant or FireEye or a Microsoft or any of these, there's a million of these firms in the States that can do pretty darn good work when it comes to discovering a threat on your network and then saying who it is. Google has a team. Lots of people have teams for this sort of thing. And in China, you have like Kihu360 and you have Tencent and you have Alibaba and a few of these other teams. And I always, the offense always feels like it's like A grade, top notch. And the defense, the papers they're putting out when they want to put out a paper in English, for example, or even in Chinese, sometimes I just Google translate them. They just don't feel at that same level. This might just simply be because I'm reading the wrong Chinese 
work. But I just don't get the same feeling from NS Focus that you would get from a CrowdStrike in terms of like where they're at. They have, they do, there are certainly people there who do great work in that space, but it's just not, to me, it doesn't feel like it's at the same biomass, if that makes any sense. And when you have a ton of great offense, but not a lot of great defense, that it, it changes the way you behave as a country, as a system. It makes you more aggressive for one, because the only thing you can rely on is your offense. And from a U.S. policy standpoint, what that would in theory imply is that we do have some incentive to get them to a level of defense that is maybe not catching us, but cleaning out the environment a little bit so that when they do catch us, it's not a humongously frightening event. What you don't want is someone overreacting and not knowing who to call. There's a lot of, there's a lot of very interesting strategic pictures there that are difficult to think about. And I'm always on the eye for papers where we've started discussing real stuff like that. It's been a long time since I've been to China, and it's changed a lot. But I think if I had to look at one other thing about the Chinese is there's a myopia in the United States that says the Chinese are not going to produce software that we use, which I find very funny. Uh, TikTok, I think, surprised people, which is very weird because... The Chinese are very good at producing software, and I think we're not predicting properly how dominant some of that software could and will be. A while back, I talked to a friend of mine, and he was thinking of going and working at Google. And I said, it's a great idea because Google has one of the five computers in the world. And he's, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, there's only five computers in the world, and China has two of them, and Google has one of them. And Amazon has one of them, and the NSA has one of them. Those are the five computers. And Europe has none of them, so don't even bother with that con that whole continent. And five years later, he was like, you're right, because the stuff you can see when you're doing real data processing is fundamentally different from how you do things with the glorified game machines that we all use to record Zoom calls on. And the Chinese, are their AI and other sort of like high technology systems that they've built in-house are very good. They have great supercomputers with great software stacks. They build like a ton of really good software over there. And so I think that's something that we, in the States, we pretend doesn't exist. So that's a, a weird myopia that I would like us to get over. So Dave, we actually wrote a, a piece almost a year ago now talking about the risk of a game data and the sort of like weapon the potential weaponization of, of it um, this was at the time where we were like the, the the u.s political discourse was most freaked out about tiktok it still remains to be seen how the biden administration is going to come out on data transfer to to china but tencent of course has invested in every half of the video game companies around the world but there's also been this like enormous hit genshin impact over the past few months which is solely uh just a, a chinese dev doing an incredible job of of, of putting out kind of world-class gaming content. What are you... Do you still think it's a... Uh, do you still think it's a concern, Dave? And all gaming is very interesting when it comes to cyber risk because we completely ignore it. It comes with very low-level control of your computer, ubiquitous control of almost every computer. There's almost no computer out there that doesn't have video gaming on it. And the Chinese unbeknownst to almost everybody, have a massive lock on the video gaming market, which I think those three things combined present a clear and present danger that we don't have any way to get a grasp on. So the, the, the quantity, the quality, and just the, the access to the data is, I don't personally have a solution, right? Like this is one of those things where you're like, what's the answer? And I wouldn't have one.
But you have to acknowledge the risk first. And I don't think we've even done that yet. I think we started with TikTok and we're like, whoa, what's our plan? A great firewall of the United States? Are we going to ban TikTok from the Apple store? How would that work even? Because it'll start just getting sideloaded on Android systems. And then are we going to somehow make it illegal to have TikTok in the United... Like, we don't have a good way to do this. So, I mean, we have control of our financial system as long as Bitcoin doesn't become a thing. But other than that, we don't have a way to keep the Chinese from controlling the information space in the United States. So that, it should worry you. I still think it's real. I just don't think we have an, a solution. And... I don't necessarily know that the Trump administration's solutions are going to be wildly different from the Biden administration's solutions in this space. They may be pitched differently. Dave, the the talent policy issue, which you talked about earlier, of there only being so many engineers in the U.S. who could do this sort of work is a fascinating one. I'm curious if you could walk through some of the, come back to that and do it in a little more detail about what is hindering hiring and advancement, getting more people into this field. You always see those articles being like, there's like 50,000 unfilled cyber jobs in the U.S. What's what's behind those stories? I've never in my life had a problem hiring people in cyber. And part of the reason for that is that if you're spending all your time trying to hire and not mentor, then you are failing. Like you should spend 10 times as much money on mentorship than you are in hiring. And so where especially the U.S. government has a problem with is not just in recruitment, but also retaining the right people. The market all over itself is weird, but especially in government space, it's really distorted by classifications and clearances. And there was a really good paper that came out that got an A grade from Una Hathaway on the history and terribleness. Former China Talk guest. Oh, she. I missed that one. I need to go back. I need to go yeah. back and watch that. She was like my third episode. She, Scroll oh, way man. back. She, so her paper was, it, it was multiple things. One, it was really well researched. And two, it was very brave. It was a brave thing to write. And it was important because the classifications and clearances whole ecosystem has produced a number of really bad things. And one of them is that it's very hard to do business as a small business for the U.S. government in the cybersecurity space in particular. And then it's also really hard for anyone to leave government service and then come back to government service. And that has, I think, done massive, massive harm to how we are able to staff our agencies over time. Because once an executive or a senior manager or senior technical person leaves government service, they're almost certain to get rid of their clearance after a little bit. And getting their clearance again, it's just a nightmare. I have, I don't know if I have a good analogy to it, but you just, you don't see people who are like, yeah, I'm really glad I have a clearance. And it was a painful, painless process that I would do again. Like you don't see people saying that. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And, And it doesn't have to be that way. We've come into this trap. We think everything, that development of trust is like a process that happens once every three years with your poly. And then that's, you get these very rigorous and strict buckets that you get placed in. Oh, I've got TSSCI. Oh, I've only got TS or whatever. It doesn't have to be this way. And information doesn't operate that way. And industry doesn't use, industry uses like a softer traffic light protocol for this, where they've reinvented some of the same problems, to be honest, but we can do better. So the U.S. government has a number of issues. One of the other issues is culture, which has been pointed to in a number of papers. And I think I like to, to give you some hard data on the culture problems that we have in cybersecurity, which is just to 
be completely honest with you, there are more LGBTQ members of the cybersecurity community than there are people who believe in God of any kind. And when you look at what the NSA says on their Twitter account, they are very clear on Pride Month to fly a big pride flag and have the director of NSA and Cybercom make a big speech about it. Because that is the culture that they are both attracting and retaining. And you do not see that from, for example, CISA, the FBI, DHS, other elements of U.S. government, most other governments. You do see it from GCHQ, obviously, who is has Turing on a stamp. And I think Getting that culture right has been a continual nightmare and will continually be an anchor at the feet of a lot of these agencies as they try to staff up and accomplish a very difficult mission. And they're currently not doing it very well. Let's just put it that way. They don't know why they're failing, but maybe they should just look at their Twitter feed and figure it out. I would love to. Is there like a is there like a book on the gay community and hackers? Is, there, is this like a longstanding thing? No. I didn't, it's I not didn't a, know that. There's no need for a book. Everyone, like you're more likely to meet a gay person than not or a trans person, a trans person. Like people don't understand how harmful Trump's anti-trans efforts were to the American cyber capabilities. There's no book on that. Actually, here's something that just to throw it in there, we've started losing the oral history. That is like the history of cyber efforts in the United States and its allies. And it would be amazing if Congress could find a million bucks in its pocket to fund a classified historical review of how we started this stuff, like from the 2000s and on. These people, especially the early stuff, it's being lost. And it's important to understand the sweep of history and the sweep of policy and where it all comes from. So if you know any Congress critters, you should suggest it. Dave, what do you think about DARPA? DARPA, I have a lot of opinions about. And they are good opinions. I will say I listened to your DARPA episode and I thought he was right on except not strident enough. I think part of the problem is that he still like in his head was looking at DARPA's r- levels of successes. But I think its successes are almost aside from the point. I think DARPA has been able to foster a community and a culture of risk taking in the United States on some of these things and supported when small companies wanted to do this work. So I think people think of it as like DARPA is going to fund Raytheon, but actually the, the the people they hire to be program managers know the whole community really well. That's part of what they are skilled at. And they know who will be able to think outside the box and do a really good job on a really weird, hard problem. And they are able to take the paperwork and make it not as big a deal. It's not, it's still there, but it's not as big a deal. So I I will say it's one of the biggest advantages of the American system that for some reason the Europeans have not been able to get a hold of. And I don't know what the Chinese version of this would be. I would assume they have one because they throw money around a lot more over there. But frankly, I've seen one of the problems, you had a question for him about what would you double DARPA's budget? And he was like, definitely not. That would screw it up. And I don't know if that's the right question. To be honest, I think instead of doubling DARPA's budget, you really do want a specialized agency that takes things that get generated out of DARPA and productizes them for uh, in, in a similar fashion. Says, okay, we have a POC here. We have the source code. We have enough licensing rights to it that we can do what we want with it. Let's put it to use in some way that maybe even was not the intended way. 
and maybe does not necessarily even have a defense component to it. So I think you could spend equal amounts of money doing that. I, I know they do some of that, but that's probably the area I would invest in. But DARPA's amazing. It's an amazing feature. It's good to call out bits of government that are working really well. So Dave, lastly, what are your thoughts on Cyberpunk 2077? I played through the whole thing on Google Stadia. It was some of the best cyberpunk writing I've ever seen. The story is phenomenal. I thought the way they integrate you into the game world is is just an amazing experience. I think they should be really proud of what they did. Now, obviously, because I was running on Stadia, I didn't have any of the issues with the game that other people had because it was like optimized for that platform. I got an ending that was extremely depressing, but still like really fit the character. Okay, here's the thing. Most people play Cyberpunk wrong. They think the goal is to win the game. The goal of any of those open world systems is to explore the world and role play that you're a character. And so the way you should play it is, in my case, my character was an alcoholic. And so when she saw alcohol laying around, she would drink it. Even though drinking it does not improve your stats. It lowers your stats. It's a big debuff, right? Like you get drunk and like you can't shoot as well. But because my character was an alcoholic, that's what she did. Like you're playing a character. So I think people treat it more more as a fitness challenge or a mental puzzle and less as a Dungeons and Dragons game that you are immersing yourself in to explore a space. And probably the best game I've ever played, probably equivalent to maybe Breath of the Wild, which is a similar style game in almost every aspect. So I got it when it came out and they have a full Chinese oh. dub. So I da- so I think it it came out in February and I had already been outside of China for almost a okay. year now and was like pretty bummed out about that and they, you have that first scene where you're walking around in yes. a bar and the the entire dubbing cast is from okay. Beijing. Uh, so they have these like really heavy like Arhuayin accents, and it was such a lovely experience, just like being yeah. in this like weird Chinese cyberpunk. If you're doing world. it right, you feel um, like you're in the world, and, like you're there. Yeah. And I actually stopped playing Dave because after two hours, like it just got so I just get so frustrated with like things popping in and stuff breaking. But you've now inspired me. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go pick it back up and report it. And I will say, like this is one of the upsides of playing a game in Chinese is I'm not going to know every single word of what all the abilities oh. do and whatever. So you actually are forced to go with the flow a little more. Yes. If you are missing some of the mechanics and you're just like having the kind of environment, like, like uh, just to embrace you. So uh, encourage anyone out there, I guess, uh, you know, <laughs> to get a Google Stadia account and maybe practice their Chinese by checking out the, uh, the cyberpunk China. I didn't Chinese even dub. think of that, but that's actually genius. It really is. There's a there's unfortunately I mean, there's a very heavily Japanese element to that game, as there are with many cyberpunk games. And probably viewing it in Japanese would be even more immersive in some ways, because so many of the characters do speak Japanese. But when a character speaks a different language, it actually has this amazing sort of display of their language and then it gets translated into your language in a special subtitle, like by your inbuilt like brain computer. Which is a very cool thing, too. So you would probably get both. I don't know. I think you should play it because the story is just brilliant. Dave Itell, thanks so much for being Thank part you so of much. China
走秋天，狗子在一场耍不来看不起走狗。哦吼，你娃一直在哦吼，我能看见你在包子头，而我每天都在网上游。南京、成都、德基、太古里、LV、麦克边，老弟兄一人来一件，花不能赚一千，一万花不够一天。我说完你听完你说吹牛逼，不行我聊心 ，Plan B 敲了个 B Amazing。My in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over, and we're out of food. Great! Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get twenty dollars off your first order using the code Prepared Twenty. Now, the only thing to worry about is. Dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order thirty-five dollars. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.